long history. The age of exploration. When Europeans met the locals. Part 1. What were some of the earliest relations between Europeans and the locals they met like? Hello everyone and welcome to Long History again. We're having a bit of a change from our usual episodes here. As explained in the previous episode, when we finish a long document we like to have a couple of short episodes just to break things up. And as we had no real document to summarise, we thought we'd come up with a couple of different episodes. And in this one, we went through the documents previously covered on Long History and looked at the times when Europeans first met local people. And these meetings took place in North America in today's California, the Gulf Coast, particularly Florida, the New York area and Hudson Bay, as well as the Philippines. Now we've divided these meetings into two episodes, and in these episodes we show the range of reactions that take place when Europeans meet these people for the first time. So it's easy to be reductive and say there's a lot of cliché involved, particularly because these documents are always written by Europeans. We wanted to show that there are differences in these texts, perhaps because of the person who wrote the document, as well as because of the people who were involved. And it's got to be remembered that the Europeans met vastly different people on totally different continents. So here we go with the first part of the Age of Exploration, when Europeans met the locals. Of the documents that we've covered on Long History, the one that was written first was the journal of Columbus's first voyage across the Atlantic. And I'll have to be careful with my words here because this perhaps wasn't the first time that Europeans met people from the Americas. But I think we can say for certain that during this Age of Exploration, the 14 and 1500s, this was the first time that Europeans met people from this continent. Columbus has crossed the Atlantic, his men are getting increasingly restless because they're not quite sure if they'll ever reach any land, but finally they see land, and it's around the area of today's Bahamas Islands, but the precise island is up for debate, and here's the quotation of the arrival on that island, and that first meeting. This is from a journal of the first voyage of Columbus, and we don't quite know who wrote it, although as we'll see here, the book does claim to make direct quotes from text written by Columbus, the Admiral as he's called here. Here's the quotation. Presently, many inhabitants of the island assembled. What follows is the actual words of the Admiral in his book of the first navigation and discovery of the Indies. I, he says, that we might form great friendship, for I knew that they were a people who could be more easily freed and converted to our holy faith by love than by force, gave to some of them red caps and glass beads to put around their necks and many other things of little value, which gave them great pleasure, and made them so much our friends that it was a marvel to see. They afterwards came to the ship's boats where we were, swimming and bringing us parrots, cotton threads in skins, darts, and many other things, and we exchanged them for other things that we gave them, such as glass beads and small bells. In fin, they took all, and gave what they had with goodwill. It appeared to me to be a race very poor in everything. They go as naked as when their mothers bore them, and so do the women, although I did not see more than one young girl. All I saw were youths, none more than thirty years of age. They are very well made, with very handsome bodies and very good countenance. Their hair is short and coarse, almost like the hairs of a horse's tail. Now this description does go on. And it's from episode 4 of the series on Columbus, if you want to listen to the full description. But I'll give a couple more fragments from the description here. For example, 
they neither carry nor know anything of arms, for I showed them swords, and they took them by the blade and cut themselves through ignorance. And this is where he rounds his description off. They should be good servants and intelligent, for I observed that they quickly took in what was said to them, and I believe that they would easily be made Christians, as it appeared to me that they had no religion. So the first meeting between Columbus and these people on this island is almost a cliché of what might happen to, between Europeans and the local people when they meet. This is a very European assessment of these people at the time. Columbus, when he makes it clear that they are poor in everything, pointing out that their hair is like a horse's tail, comparing them with animals, which isn't untypical. Pointing out their ignorance when dealing with these blades and cutting themselves. And then actually being quite explicit in saying that they could be good servants. We can see 15th century attitudes in action here. And in a strange way, Columbus not only describes these people he meets, but he almost defines the cliché. There's no thought, for example, that these people might be individuals. Columbus thinks of them in terms of their usefulness, and at least here, there's no thought that these people could be peers. So I guess the other thought here is, do we get a glimpse here of the real people themselves? Can we get any sense of what they were actually like? And I guess it's just a question that I'll leave open. Now, there are lots of meetings between Columbus and local people in the Caribbean area. Columbus does enslave some of these people. And on the island of Hispaniola, after a friendly meeting with local people, he leaves some of the Europeans behind to set up the first colony in the Americas. But we'll look at the next document from the Age of Exploration covered on Long History so far. And that's the first voyage around the world by the Magellan Expedition. And again, there are many meetings between local people and the Magellan crew, not least one mentioned in the previous episode, where we looked at some of the memorable deaths in long history. But in terms of the local people, episode 16 is named after one of the most famous of these people. And in the document used here, written by Pigafetta, he was called Silapu Lapu. And that's also the name of episode 16 of this document. And here's the quotation where he's mentioned in that episode. Magellan and his crew have landed on an island called Zubu, they call it Zubu, which is Cebu today, and that's on the Philippine Islands. And here's the quotation. Near that island of Zubu was an island called Matan, which formed the port where we were anchored. The name of its village was Matan, and its chiefs were Zula and Silapulapu. That city which we burned was in that island and was called Bulaya. Now this episode was named Silapulapu and it was just a bit of foreshadowing really because in this Spanish text he's given no prominence at all so we wanted to flag that he is going to become very important and in the next episode, episode 17, we have this quotation On Friday, April the 26th, Zula, a chief of the island of Matan sent one of his sons to present two goats to the captain general and to say that he would send him all that he had promised but that he had not been able to send it to him because of the other chief, Silapulapu, who refused to obey the king of Spain. He requested the captain to send him only one boatload of men on the next night, so that they might help him and fight against the other chief. The captain general decided to go thither with three boatloads. We begged him repeatedly not to go, but he, like a good shepherd, refused to abandon his flock. So there's a lot going on there. Some of the chiefs have agreed to come on side with Magellan and have agreed, at least in Magellan's eyes, in this document to become Christians. 
but this one chief, Silapu-Lapu, refuses to obey. And there's an interesting detail there, where we are told that one of the other chiefs from the same island of Matan asked Magellan and his men to go and fight this man. So this text by Pigafetta is making it clear that Magellan only went to fight this man because of a request from the local people. And I guess all we can do here is take that at face value. But Magellan is apparently only doing what the local people want to do, and he ends up dying as a result. And if you want to listen to the full details, that's in episode 17 of Magellan's first voyage around the world. And before we move on, it's perhaps worth noting that although Silapu-Lapu is mentioned a couple of times in this text, Magellan does not meet him and he's only referred to by name in the text. No one can actually describe him or there's no description of a meeting. But it's his men who will eventually kill Magellan. Now according to these documents we've had one group of people who are a bit ignorant and seem like they'd be good servants. And then another group who are very rebellious and end up killing Magellan. And perhaps you could say that they're two ends of the same cliché really. But moving on to the third document in the chronology... This is the description by Cabeza de Baca of the expedition, which turns into a quest for survival, around Florida and the Gulf Coast, towards Texas and then into Mexico. And that journey began in 1526. And I think the thing that stands out for me in Cabeza de Baca's text is that although he starts off as this kind of coloniser, eventually his text just becomes about survival. And so this European attitude of being better than these people you meet although I'm not sure that it isn't in there somewhere, it's stripped away from Cabeza de Baca as he needs to survive and he needs to deal with these people. So I think of all these documents, he's the one who most appreciates the differences between the groups of people that he meets as he wanders around this rather vast area, really. He is specifically aware, for example, that one group of people has one set of customs and another has a different set of customs. He's aware of rivalries and different languages spoken between these people. And I've got some quotations here from episode 8 of the series, which we called Florida, Texas and Northern Mexico in the 1500s. And these give some examples of the range of experiences that the Spanish and Cabeza de Vaca specifically had with these local people. Here's the first quote. The Indians treated us kindly. They deprived themselves of food that they might give it to us and presented us with skins and some trifles. So protracted was the hunger we there experienced that many times I was three days without eating. The natives also endured as much, and it appeared to me a thing impossible that life could be so prolonged, although afterwards I found myself in greater hunger and necessity, which I shall speak of farther on. The Indians who had Alonso del Castillo, Andres Torrantes, and the others that remained alive, were of a different tongue and ancestry from these, and went to the opposite shore of the main to eat oysters, where they stayed until the first day of April when they returned. So we have a sense here of two totally different groups of people, and we can see Cabeza de Vaca's need to survive with these people. Here they've treated him quite well, but in a later quote in the same episode we have the following. I was obliged to remain with the people belonging to the island more than a year, and because of the hard work they put upon me and the harsh treatment, I resolved to flee from them and go to those of Charruco, who inhabit the forests and country of the main, the life I led being insupportable. So it's quite clear that this life isn't pretty. Cabeza de Vaca is scratching around to survive. In episode 9 he's given as a slave, but as the episodes progress, Cabeza de Vaca develops a reputation as a healer. And by episode 16, 
Cabeza de Vaca is treated as something of a deity by these people, as we can see in this quotation. Frequently, we were accompanied by three or four thousand persons, and as we had to breathe upon and sanctify the food and drink for each, and grant permission to do the many things they would come to ask, it may be seen how great was the annoyance. So there is a kind of a strange relationship that develops, whereas we can see in this quotation, Cabeza de Vaca himself doesn't really want to be treated like this. It's kind of demanded of him, and there's a bit of an explanation why in the following quotation. Abroad in the country, wheresoever this became known, there was such dread that it seemed as if the inhabitants would die of fear at sight of us. They besought of us not to remain angered, nor require that more of them should die. They believed we caused their death by only willing it, when in truth it gave us so much pain that it could not be greater. For beyond their loss we feared they might all die, or abandon us of fright and that other people thenceforward would do the same, seeing what had come to these. We prayed to God our Lord to relieve them, and from that time the sick began to get better. So I'm conflating a few things there, but the conclusion I'm drawing is that when Cabeza de Vaca arrives in an area, along with some of his other remaining compatriots, he seems to bring disease with him. Many people fall ill, and so they assume that Cabeza de Vaca and his men have some sort of godlike ability to give these diseases. Many of the people die, but some of them get better. And as a result, these people also believe that Cabeza de Vaca can cure these people. So it's an interesting and quite logical conclusion, actually. But these local people do actively worship Cabeza de Vaca, and it's a very strange set of events. But because of this intimate relation that Cabeza de Vaca has with these people, he does become to appreciate the various languages involved and cultures involved with these people, which I think is quite unique in these early explorations. So moving on to the next expedition, which began in 1539. This expedition was headed by a man called Hernando de Soto, and one of the big differences between this document and Cabeza de Vaca's document is that whereas Cabeza de Vaca seems to appreciate the people, their languages, their cultures, Hernando de Soto only appears to be on a search for riches. However, what makes the document here unique, and it's written by a man called the Gentleman of Elvers, is that there are a lot of individuals in this document. So he doesn't just talk of groups of people, but Hernando de Soto, by being in charge, unlike Cabeza de Vaca, who never saw himself as a leader, de Soto walks into these places and wants to talk to the leader, and the supposed words that those people say are written down by the Gentleman of Elvers. However, I wanted to focus on a, a little story within this document. I don't know how representative it is, but it is quite interesting, and I'll give the first quotation here. And this takes place near the beginning of the journey in the Florida area. Of the Indians taken in Napetuca, the treasurer, Juan Gaitan, brought a youth with him, who stated that he did not belong to that country, but to one afar in the direction of the sun's rising, from which he had been a long time absent visiting other lands, that its name was Yupaha, and was governed by a woman, the town she lived in being of astonishing size, and many neighbouring lords her tributaries, some of whom gave her clothing, others gold in quantity. So of course, Hernando de Soto only wants wealth and gold, so his ears prick up when he hears about this gold. And he chooses to believe this particular youth, and lets him lead them ahead. And this is from episode 7 of the document. Led by the youth, they forded two rivers, 
each the breadth of two shots of a crossbow, the water rising to the stirrups of the saddles and passing in a current so powerful that it became necessary for those on horseback to stand one before another, that they on foot, walking near, might cross along above them. Then it came to another of a more violent current and larger, which was got over with more difficulty, the horses swimming for a lance's length at the coming out into a pine grove. So from these descriptions, it is supposed that these rivers were in the Georgia area, but the quotation continues, the governor menaced to the youth, motioning that he would throw him to the dogs for having lied to him in saying that it was four days' journey, whereas they had travelled nine, each day of seven or eight leagues, and that the men and horses had become very thin because of the sharp economy practised with the maize. The youth declared that he knew not where he was. Fortunately for him at the time, there was not another whom Juan Ortiz understood, or it would have been cast to the dogs. So I thought that this was an interesting example of a local person being treated actually like a human being. The governor, this Hernando de Soto, and chooses to trust him and believe him that somewhere towards the sunrise there is a country with a female leader, but then he loses his temper with him. And this Juan Ortiz is mentioned as the only person amongst the Spanish who can communicate with these local people, and it's quite telling that it says that there was not another person whom Juan Ortiz understood, so that just shows how difficult communication was between the Spanish and the local people. Now this youth is blamed for leading them on a wild goose chase, but in the next episode things develop once more. This country, according to what the Indians stated, had been very populous. It appeared that the youth who was the guide had heard of it, and what was told him he declared to have seen, and magnified such parts as he chose to suit his pleasure. He told the governor that they had begun to enter upon the country he had spoken to him about, which, because of its appearance, with his being able to understand the language of the people, gained for him some credit. He wished to become a Christian, and asked to be baptised, which was done, he receiving the name of Pedro, and the governor commanded the chain to be struck off that he had carried until then. So the governor in the end is sort of forced to accept that what this youth has told him was the truth, and they do eventually meet this female leader but I did think the interesting details in this scene was that this youth chooses to be baptised and called Pedro, and then there's sort of a moment of revelation here, where we can see that all this time, this youth has been in chains, which is another quite striking sign of the times. So that's the end of part one. We've looked at four documents about Columbus, Magellan, Cabeza de Vaca and Hernando de Soto. We've seen a rather peaceful and rather cliched meeting between Columbus and the local people. And in the case of the Magellan voyage, we saw what happens when the local people oppose the arrival of the Spanish in the area. And then we looked at Cabeza de Vaca's relations with the local people and how he seemed to appreciate the nuances of the different languages they spoke and their cultures. But then we saw how these local people began to treat Cabeza de Vaca against his will like some sort of deity. Then finally, we looked at Hernando de Soto and his experience with this youth, which is also one of the few examples of one of these local people developing a personality within the document, especially one who isn't a leader. So I decided to split this topic up into two parts, so there will be another one coming, where we'll look at documents by or about 
Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh and Henry Hudson to see how these explorers interacted with the local people they met. But that's all for now, so thank you for listening to the latest episode of Long History, and goodbye.